It's September 18, 2019. Welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First up, we have Alec Wagner from Purple Prize, and uh, he's here to talk to us about, tell us about Kilo Hoku. And then we have Peter Hershock from the East West Center to talk about ethics and humanity in artificial intelligence. And I want to welcome uh, Alec uh, Wagner back to Bite Marks Cafe. Alec, you know, you, we've, uh, we love to have you on talking about Purple Prize and Purple Maya. And, and now you have a big uh, event coming up, uh, and I want you to tell us about it. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again, Bert. You know, we always appreciate it. Um, yeah, so Kilo Hoku is the demonstration day of the Purple Prize. And that is, you know, kind of the thing that culminates uh, this indigenous innovation uh, competition uh, and entrepreneurship program that the Purple Maya Foundation puts on uh, on a yearly basis. So this is our third one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have 12 teams who are giving, you know, pitches and, and they're, they've been working on really incredible ideas for the last eight months. So we started working with, with them in February. Um, the teams are working on technology companies that are rooted in Hawaiian values, but optimized for, you know, things not just financial capital because, you know, they need to be sustainable and we get that. Um, but uh, they're optimizing for things like community abundance and environmental sustainability as mm-hmm. well. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we make companies for that? And then we're pitching them to, you know, people who have uh, have capital or have connections or have networks to, you know, be able to help take those things to the next step. Um, and so the demo day, uh, those 12 teams are pitching to a panel of five um, impact investors. So people uh, who are investing in companies that are optimizing for social and environmental returns as well as, you know, financial returns. Um, we're also bringing in, you know, folks who have deep technology backgrounds and community leaders uh, in our community here. And um, they're going to be uh, deliberating and deciding upon who wins the Purple Prize. Now, these companies, well, these individuals or teams that first came into the the whole Purple Prize process, mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily companies, right? Right, right. They were, you know, a lot of them, it's funny, were kind of at the chicken scratch on the back of a napkin stage uh, when they had uh, yeah. gotten into the Purple Prize. Great ideas, um, but not a ton of, uh, not a ton there in terms of, uh, business models or in terms of like, uh, you know, if the technology is something that is actually doable. But now they're at the stage where, you know, they have fully baked out business models. They have functioning minimum viable products. Mm-hmm. Some of them have inbound clients. Some of them have inbound partnerships. Um, and several have incorporated as nonprofit or for-profit companies. And so we're in a completely different stage. And these guys are like, this is really impressive because these guys are not coming from entrepreneurial backgrounds. Um, they, they are coming from extremely diverse backgrounds, you know, some native Hawaiian cultural practitioners, some folks are, you know, researchers, Mm -hmm. uh, in the university. Um, others, you know, have, you know, baby backgrounds, uh, tangentially in technology, but, um, uh, it's very, very, uh, kind of sparse in terms of like people who actually have deep entrepreneurial or technology backgrounds, but we've managed to get them to do incredible things. And, you know, bringing that to sort of the design table has really diversified the kinds of things that we've been able to bake out of the Purple Prize. So out of the uh, the, the, the pool of winners, I mean, what yep. kind of different categories may be uh, potentially given out to the teams? Uh, Is it going to be just one prize or are there going to be tiers of prizes? Yep. So there will be three prizes. So there'll be a first prize, a second prize, and a third prize. And, you know, thanks to our sponsors, we've managed to accumulate a total of $75,000 to wow. give, a, give out across those 
those three teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it doesn't stop here. You know, that that seventy five thousand dollars doesn't get apl- deployed up front. Uh, it gets deployed over a course of milestones that we'll set with those teams and help them to continue along their paths to viability. Mm-hmm. And this path to viability, I mean, what do you ultimately want to see from these uh, winners? Yeah, well, I guess we're yet to see what that looks like because you know we we kind of have um, a couple of things in mind that uh, that are unknowns in indigenous innovation. You know, what does a company look like at scale with the indigenous innovation mentality? Mm-hmm. What does um, investment or what does an investment outlook or exit strategy look like in, in, in indigenous innovation? Because, you know, when you're innovating for a community or you're innovating for a place and the resurgence of a place, you may not be thinking about how am I going to make a maximization of profit mm-hmm. on this venture or how am I going to um, how am I going to sell this company to Amazon or to Facebook? Uh, you're thinking about how can I extend the impact of whatever I've created, and that's just a, it's a difference. And so we're yet to see. We'll find out in ten years. Oh yeah, because I think a lot of the you know the work that goes into the development of any of these companies is a real personal effort on their part to to you know basically uh, impart their values into the company. And and once you want to you know do an exit, I mean it's it's much harder. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. They're selling a part of their identity. They're selling a part of their story, and um, you know these are passion projects, but they're more than that because you know their passion is to give to the community and continue to to circulate. Um, you know whatever they can whatever they can give back circulate you know whatever they've received from the community growing up and and, and give it back okay so you got 12 companies they're going to be all pitching yeah. when and where is this going to take place it's at the Doris Duke Theater uh, okay. in in downtown and uh, it's taking place at 6:30 a.m. Um, or excuse me sorry 9:30 a.m. ending at 6:30 p.m. Oh, that's a f- okay. Full yeah, day, full, full day. day. Uh-huh. But you can. There's half day tickets that are available. Um, in fact, the half day tickets are free. There's only a few left. But you know, full price tickets, thirty bucks. Um, you know, get lunch, get a chance to go through the Honolulu Museum of Art, um, mm-hmm. and they're also you know a partner in this, which is super exciting. Uh, great venue. Um, and we've been working on you know a kind of digital art project as well. Uh, so stay tuned. What's the link to, uh, that people can go to to sign up? The easiest way, because uh, you can go to the Eventbrite, um, but long link. Easiest way is to go onto our website, purpleprize.com. Okay, uh, and then I'll put that up on the show notes. Well, thanks, Alec, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Bert. And we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Peter Hershock from the East-West Center. We'll talk about ethics and AI. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio every morning when I'm driving to work. It it energizes me for the day, and it gives me that information that I need to be effective informs my day and uh, I really relish that time in the car as crazy as that may sound to actually uh, to be educated on what's going on in the world. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe and I'm glad to welcome Peter Hershock, manager of uh, the East Asian Studies Development Program over at the East-West Center. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, great pleasure to be here. You know, I consider myself very fortunate to have been invited to uh, this symposium on humane AI and and 
uh, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of explain what was the what was the whole purpose behind putting this symposium together. Well, you know, artificial intelligence is suddenly in the news everywhere, mm-hmm. and um, East West Center has long had an interest in things like smart cities, mm-hmm. and uh, been trying to promote sort of looking at that. Uh, from a kind of a cultural, social, economic, political standpoint, I really look at it as a total complexion of stuff. And we thought, you know, artificial intelligence is kind of even a more encompassing thing than the smart cities. It's bigger in many ways. And so we thought, what could the East West Center do that's distinctively different? I mean, we're here in the middle of the Pacific. We're not Oxford. We're not MIT or Harvard. You know, I mean, we have limited resources here. But what can we do that's really different? And one thing that kind of stood out is that there's lots of talk about, you know, aligning AI with human values. But when you really start to dig into it, what do we mean by these human mm-hmm. values? Privacy or justice and so on, equity. And culturally, huge differences in how that's understood. And we thought, why don't we convene a program where we get people from around the world to come and really talk through. If we're going to start doing something to realize truly humane and equitable artificial intelligence, how do we go about doing that? How do we start that conversation? So we ended up with uh, 25 people representing 13 countries from Asia, the Americas, the Middle East, Europe, and I brought them together for four days of conversation. How did you find some of the speakers that participated in this symposium? I, I, I was uh, thoroughly impressed, and obviously, uh, you know, you were able to attract these folks to come in and, and sort of share their views on humanity and AI. I mean, how how was that? Uh, how did you bring all these folks together? You know, a lot of it's process. Yeah. You you meet people along the way. You go to a conference. You make a connection. You ask people. Uh, some of them are really well known. Some of the folks that we invited less well known. Uh, but a lot of it's really just sort of exploring what's out there and trying to find people that we thought could communicate at a level that average people are going to be able to understand. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you could talk about AI at that super technical level, the science level, and it's going to go right past most people. Uh, but there are people like we brought in, this guy, Dekai Wu, mm-hmm. who uh, is able to translate that into terms that all of us can understand. And that's what we really need. Now, in terms of the audience, and you said you you know, you know reached out to uh, the participants that uh, – were a part of this. Uh, where, what were you targeting in terms of your audience? Well, we were looking for dialogue partners. So we're really looking for people who are willing to do new thinking. So everybody that we brought in, you know, there was a uh, application process, competitive application. People had to send us their, you know, their bios, CV, and a short statement about how they thought uh, they could impact the future, the dynamics of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and how it's developing. So we kind of looked at the. We had seventy, eighty people who applied, and we took twenty-two of them. And then the invited speakers, the other four people, or three people that we invited in from outside. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to put together a group that were willing to sit down together, do new thinking. Not to rehash what they've already written about or talked about or done the TEDx talks about, but really to come in and do new thinking together and explore cultural differences as a resource for doing ethics and AI. What are, what are some of the uh, concerns that you're trying to bring to the the, the you know, the level of discussion in terms of where AI might go and where the humanity aspect of of uh, training your algorithms to to embrace. I mean, where what are what is the the potential concerns that are starting to show itself as a result of, you know, this leading edge technology? Well, for me, I, I think you can kind of express it relatively simply by saying that the great promises of artificial intelligence, and let's say artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning, deep mm-hmm. learning, mm-hmm. three somewhat different things, but they're all connected together. Let's call that the intelligence revolution, what's happening with that. 
And it's going to be as big as the Industrial Revolution. It's going to be as big as the, the, the big revolution that took place when Copernicus said the Earth isn't the center of the universe anymore. We're going to de- humanity is being decentered by this. And it's doing that in ways that are going to open up really new, great new opportunities for humanity, for things that we can get done. But it's also going to come with a bunch of challenges. So the promises of AI and the perils of AI are weighted together. They're inseparable. We can't deal with one without dealing with the other. So I call this a predicament. It's not a problem that we can solve technically. These are predicaments that can only be resolved ethically. And that means clarity about how things got to be the way they are and how they're moving forward. And then a new set of commitments because it takes commitments to make changes in this kind of stuff. Give me an example of some of the, uh, let's say, perils that might occur if we were to, let's say, have a data set and teach a machine based on that data set. And then the resulting algorithms will show perhaps one, only one aspect of what the diverse community might be reflecting. Like on the algorithm and the training of the algorithms, algorithms are trained by whatever data you provide them. Mm -hmm. And if you have flaws in the data, you're going to get flaws in the, in the activity of the algorithm, the choices it's making. So a lot of people have been talking about the way in which the criminal justice system is making use of algorithms to do sort of uh, recommendations at the judicial level for sentencing and for parole. Now, that's based on historical data. Now, we have a country where, depending on what you look like, where you come from, your socioeconomic background, and let's, let's say it, race, you're going to get a different shake in the courts than other people do. And if you do that over a long period of time, then it ends up correlating with things like how many people are in prison, what's the recidivism rate, and so on. These are big socioeconomic issues, but they're also embedded in the data. Mm -hmm. So what happens is then you have algorithms that are holding people hostage to the history of abuse by a legal system that is not actually equal in its operation. Equal in aspiration, but not necessarily in practice. That's a real danger. Now, when... when uh, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, developers look at, uh, you know, training their systems. I mean, they're looking at big data sets. And what you just described is the fact that you may have historical data sets that only, you know, sort of reflect, uh, you know, one sort of case or one, one sense of the uh, judicial system. How do you now start to incorporate a, a, a wider data set or, or bring in sort of diversity uh, into the, the training that the machines will now need to be more diverse. How does that how does that happen if the data is already sort of swayed in one direction? Right. It's it's providing the algorithms with new data sources. So basically it's people who are willing to say, look, we've got a set of data that's actually prejudiced historically in this way or that way. And we can correct for that. We can actually start feeding it new kinds of data, new data systems, and then we end up with a different kind of algorithmic functioning. But the the algorithm training is only really one part of this big set of issues. I mean, it's an important part, but it's not the only one. So you get things like autonomous vehicles, and you think, okay, autonomous vehicles. Number one cause of death used to be uh, vehicle accidents, you know, car accidents. And uh, wouldn't it be great if we had autonomous cars that could reduce the number of accidents, reduce you know traffic fatalities, and really get that number down? If you've ever had a fatality in your family or even just an injury from an accident, economic or physical injury, I mean, that's huge. So if we could get rid of that, that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. That same technology is going to put the cab driver, the Uber driver, the Lyft driver, the long-haul truck drivers, you know, the people who are running trains, the people who are driving the city buses, they're all going to be out of work. 
And so you get these great promises of the technology, but when you start to scale it up, then there are perils involved in it, and they're part of the same thing. And that's why I call it a predicament. It's mm. not about bad things versus good things. It's two good things. We want people to work. We want to have safety. We want to promote both. And yet, how do we do that in a responsible way, allowing the fact that you've got really different interests at play here? Now, you know, in terms of uh, this uh, predicament, I mean, a lot of the technology, a lot of the companies, a lot of the motivations around the development is is profit driven. Oh yeah. And and so, how do you, as a as a, a researcher, identifying you know sort of these predicaments, but actually trying to also influence the uh, desire for profit and the the quick turnaround for some of these systems that are going you know getting implemented already. I mean, th- there's a there's a real gap in that. I think that's going to be really crucial, and it's going to involve getting not just the major corporations that are involved in this, the Googles and the Amazons, the Ten Cents and Alibabas in China. It's going to mean getting venture capitalists on board and saying, look, we've talked for a long time about green investment and investment in sustainable businesses and, and, and a sustainable sort of economic system. We need to now add into that investing in artificial intelligence that will actually produce as outcomes more humane and equitable futures for all of humanity. Understanding the fact that we don't all agree about what it means to be humane. We don't all agree about what it means to have equity. And so we need to dig into ways of understanding those kinds of concepts interculturally, intergenerationally, and to make use of indigenous resources, of traditional knowledge systems, and to put together a way of understanding humane inequity in a way that we can actually get global commitment to. That's what we require. That's a big conversation. It's a lot of work. and It's going to take a lot of people working energetically to pull that off. Well, didn't Facebook have a group that was supposed to look at some of these issues with AI, and they they tried to bring it together, but then for whatever reason, it it sort of fell apart? I mean, like you said, it's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of time and and, uh, resource. But even if they were unable to bring it all together, what do you think needs to happen for something like this well, to happen? You, you could take, you know, Google had their ethics committee, Facebook has their stuff, and it's a no-brainer that you're not going to go to companies like that and say, change your business model. Mm-hmm. Stop harvesting our data and converting it into revenue. It ain't going to happen. So what can we say? We could say, well, you're making use of our data in order to produce revenue. You're getting fabulously wealthy for this. It's really quite amazing. If you start to look at, uh, say, Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism, a bit on the long side, but if you just read like the beginning of it, the first uh, chapter, I mean, you get a good sense of what the inequalities are that are being developed by this kind of surveillance capital or smart capitalism. But you can go to those companies, you can say, look, you rely on the attention economy. If you can't capture our attention, you can't exploit it. And you're not going to continue capturing our attention if you continue to act in ways that we deem irresponsible as citizens, Mm -hmm. right? So what we're going to ask you to do is not stop your business plan. We know you're not going to do that. But we can say we're going to withhold our data. We'll do data strikes. You know, it's not union strikes. It's data strikes. Until you start to commit a certain amount of your resources, your revenue, to research that will develop AI, machine learning, and big data applications that actually are conducive to more humane and equitable futures and to have the kind of conversations that you need in order to pull that off. I do want to ask you a little bit more about this data strike because yeah. uh, you know, right now it doesn't seem like we have, we being the consumer, has have much control. I mean, maybe it needs to be legislated. I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Peter Hershock from the East-West Center. This is Bite Marks Cafe. 
Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Locations, Haleakala Waldorf School, and Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum, and if you're just joining us, we're talking to Peter Hershock from the East West Center about building humanity into artificial intelligence systems. And, of course, right before the break, we were talking about how perhaps we can get control of our data. Can we go on a data strike? Uh, Peter, how, how does sometimes, you know, we feel as a consumer, you know, we have to, uh, you know, accept the the um, uh, terms of conditions that a lot of these programs uh, uh, have maybe a, a, a long write-up and we never read them and we say, we accept it and now we're, you know, we're using it and our data is going wherever it goes. I mean, how do you actually have a data strike? Well, one thing is to realize that we're not just consumers. So it used to be uh, consumers, they were sort of the, the tail end of the chain of production and stuff. After the consumer, where does stuff go? To the waste dump. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. can, you can have a euphemism for what the consumer was in the global economy. Mm-hmm. But now it's really different because we're not just consumers of both material and informational goods and services. We're producers of the training data that the algorithms that are running the social media, that are running their business platforms, the social media companies, the uh, e-marketers, the uh, retailers like Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent, et cetera, they require our data to do their job. They can't get better at doing what they do as businesses without our data. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we're both consumers and producers at the same time, and that's really unique. So at least for now, consumers, we citizens, citizen consumers, actually have some leverage, some power to exert because if we withhold our data, not willy-nilly and not by buying completely out of the system because then you're spun into irrelevance, but by in a concentrated way getting together as a community and saying, look, we as this community, let's say it's college students worldwide, there's about 250 million college students worldwide. If they all got together and said, for one week, we don't visit any of these social media platforms, we won't buy anything online, until the companies that we've been loyal to say that they will then start using some of those resources to meet, let's say, the global development goals, mm-hmm. you know, Millennium Sustainable Development Goals, already agreed upon by the UN. The legislation's already there. The aspirations are there. Let's leverage the companies into doing that because they rely on our attention and converting our attention into revenue. Now, there are... Uh Perhaps uh, more progressive laws taking place in in the EU. Uh, there's also I I, I want to get your thoughts on on China and their uh, use of AI. Is it is it um, beneficial to have uh, uh, you know like a large governmental entity like the EU actually dictate on how you know data should be actually used and and basically basically fight for the you know rights of the consumer? Well, two kinds of response to that. I mean, one is that I'm a real believer in diversity where diversity is what happens as a relational quality when the differences among everybody that are involved become resources for mutual contribution to some kind of shared flourishing. Mm -hmm. That's a strong understanding of diversity. To get to that, we're going to need top-down, government top-down sort of dynamics. We're going to need bottom-up, citizen-consumer dynamics, and we're going to need peer-to-peer, you know, working between corporations as mentors to one another, as people who keep one another to check. Same thing at the local level among citizens and consumers, same things among governments. So you've raised a question about China, U.S., EU, 
mean, some people might look at this as a new great game. You know, in the 19th, early 20th century, the imperial colonial powers were playing a, new, a big great game back then mm-hmm. for dominance over land and labor. There's a new great game. The new great game depends on corporate and state interests coming together, a kind of a marriage of, you know, the uh, surveillance capitalism and the surveillance state. Mm-hmm. And to really be able to push forward with not uh, control over land and labor, but really control over human attention and what I would refer to as the colonization of consciousness. This is a big deal. This is a big historical deal. But it doesn't do justice to the complexity, ethically or geopolitically, if we look at this as a kind of uh, two-dimensional competition between China, you know, like control-oriented China, and the United States or, or Europe, you know, choice-oriented, freedom-oriented United States and Europe. That just doesn't get to the complexity of the issues. It's a lot deeper than that. And if we're going to resolve that, we need to take account of the fact we're going to have to cooperate with the Chinese, not just compete with them. We're going to have to cooperate with them. And eventually, that's going to mean coordination with them, Mm -hmm. having some shared values that actually have practical traction. Because if we don't get that with them, then we end up with a zero-sum competition. And in this one, it's really a winner-takes-all game. You know, I've I've heard people say that... uh, uh, we can talk all we want about the humanity and and AI, but uh, the way the Chinese are going with you know using using AI and and uh, uh, maybe uh, eliminating that amount of privacy that the citizens have, I mean they're already winning. They're already winning. So why waste our time on on the humanity piece? You know we need to figure out ways that we can outdo what the Chinese are doing. Well, you know the thing is is that China is also saying that they want human centered AI. And so the real question is, is what do we mean by human-centered? What kind of communities do we want to have? What kind of human beings do we want to be? You know, what does it mean to be a good father, good mother, good son, good daughter, good friend, good citizen, good consumer? I mean, these are questions that have values built into them. And the Chinese are as concerned with that as we are. Mm. What we need is a conversation where we try to figure out, struggling with all the differences that we have with them and saying, look, at some level, we've got to get on the same page here. If we don't get on the same page, then you end up with the equivalent of the Cold War arms race. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have an arms race in AI. And we don't have to go down that path. We can avoid that path. We're still at that point because we don't want to end up, look at what we're doing with Iran and Iraq. And, you know, we're still worried about nuclear deterrence. 60 years, 70, 80 years on, we haven't dealt with it. We don't have an eight-decade-long time frame to right. work with on AI. Right. This is moving really quickly. Now, you did mention something about uh, in, in one of your talks about this ethical singularity. Right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a play on the idea of the technological singularity. So mm-hmm. Ray Kurzweil and mm-hmm. a bunch of people have talked about this point at which the value of technology becomes infinite because artificial intelligence has become super-intelligent to the point that they start directly opposing human interests that the possibility is there. So a lot of people are worried about that now, the existential risk of that. But long before we get there, if we ever get there, long before we do that, we have to face this ethical singularity. And that's the point at which evaluating value systems assumes infinite importance. Because if we don't solve that, then we're going to end up with smart services, with economic systems, with these artificial agents who are working tirelessly, and innovatively to take our desires, our values, as we express them in all of our digital conduct, and to convert those into programs that will then get us to do what the companies and countries want us to do. Mm -hmm. And if we don't look out for it, what we're going to end up is a situation where smart services and the algorithmic tailoring of the human experience are not just going to supplement 
what we human beings are doing. Supplement our intelligent human practices. The possibility is able to supplant them, replace them. At the point that that happens, human intelligence becomes redundant. That is, we don't want to end up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the last, uh, well, I don't even know we, if we have any time to talk more because I mean, this is such a fascinating subject. I, I, I probably want to have you come back, but we want to continue this conversation because it is one that I think Hawaii needs to be uh, an active participant in. Where can people find out more information about the work that you're doing? Well, go to the East West Center website, eastwestcenter.org, and uh, look under the Humane AI Initiative. And you could read up a little bit about it there and see what we've been doing. Peter Hershog is the manager of the Asian Studies Development Program over at the East West Center. I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Great to be here. And, of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marsh Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about coral monitoring and a kickoff, kickoff the first day of HBR's Fun Drive. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find a podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HPR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You stay awesome, and we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Do you